Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. I'll just start by asking your full name, the rank you got to, and your service number. Yeah, right. Right, Alan Harrison. Um, rank was uh, squadron leader, and uh, my service number was four double two zero triple three. And your date and place of birth? I was born in the UK, in England. Um, in a town called Dewsbury, uh, by 1943. Okay. Um, so, uh, tell me about your background growing up and, and how you sort of ended up in aviation. Well, I went to uh, what would be called a comprehensive school uh, now, but it was the uh, Dewsbury Technical College. It was a, a specialised in technology rather than... In, uh, uh, the classics. Uh, while I was at school I joined the um, training corps where I uh, decided that uh, I wanted to fly. So in uh, 1962 I uh, applied uh, after leaving uh, school, after taking air levels, applied for the Royal Air Force and was accepted uh, to train as an air signaller. Uh, eventually uh, moving on to Shackles and Ballykelly in about 1965, which was my first operational tour. Okay, so um, tell me about the initial training when you first joined up and, and that sort of process to become... Okay, we went to uh, uh, Royal Air Force Topcliffe in, uh, in Yorkshire <clears throat> and flew on, uh, on varsities uh, and learned uh, about uh, airborne radars radios, all the electronic um, detection gear and communication gears that they had to, on operational aircraft in the RF at that time. At the end of that <coughs> flying training, which took a, about a year, we were posted to the Operational Conversion Unit, which was at uh, Royal Air Force Kinloss in Scotland, where we um, transferred to uh, Shackleton's. Uh, that was probably a six-month uh, training course, and then posted out to Ballykelly onto 204 Squadron to fly the Shackleton <coughs> Mark II. Uh, flying out of there for three years, uh, a typical sortie was between 10 and 15 hours, uh, normally uh, out of the Atlantic, uh, servicing the, uh, the weather ships that uh, were out there at the time. Uh, during the springtime we used to go uh, <coughs> for long periods of uh, time up into Norway and uh, track the Russian fleet coming out of the uh, out of the uh, ice melt ports at that time as they ice melted, and uh, spent lots of time practicing with the Royal Navy and their submarines, tracking the submarines uh, with uh, a sonar equipment, uh, sonar boys that we used to drop into the water. We used to say that each sonar boy was equivalent to the price of a mini at that time. And we used to drop them in three at a time. And there were passive ones and active ones. And uh, the Royal Navy submarines used to come along and uh, try to hide. And then uh, we used to go and debrief with the, uh, the Navy at, uh, <coughs> in, in uh, a base in Northern Ireland in uh, Londonderry. And uh, inevitably the submariners would say that uh, they weren't there when we found them. But uh, that was real cat mouse game. Yeah. And most of our time was spent flying at about between 50 and 100 feet, 
of the Atlantic for 14 or 15 hours. Now you mentioned uh, servicing the weather uh, boats that were out there. What did that involve? Were you dropping the mail or what were you doing? A mail, yeah, we were uh, dropping the mail and uh, particularly at Christmas, we used to fly out and drop their uh, Christmas presents. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, yes, it was, uh, it, was that. it was quite eye-opening really because the Atlantic in winter was quite uh, a rough uh, place to be and uh, we used to uh, get out to these guys right in the middle of the Atlantic and they were going up and down. I don't know how high the swells were, but they were enormous. And the boats were going up and down, and we were going up and down at 50. If you can imagine, we used to drop these things from 50 feet. And uh, we used to leave them, and I used to think, once I got back to Balakelly and uh, and got home, uh, I could. I still felt as, I, as though I was fine. The, the, the motion was still yeah. going, and then I thought about those guys still up there and thought, well, it's better being here than out there. Yeah, that's true. So, did you have to drop and hit it smack on the ship? With no, no, uh, we dropped it. They were, ste they were steaming, pointing in a particular direction with wind, into wind, uh, and into the swell, which dropped it uh, just off their nose. And then they'd pick it up. And they picked it. All right, okay. Even so, that's still pinpoint stuff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, okay. So um, tell me about the, the Shackleton itself and, and how many crew and, and what was it like to fly in? Well, what was it like to fly in? They always said that it was like uh, flying in formation, formation with 10,000 rivets right over around you. Um, it was very noisy uh, for the engines uh, going on. And there's no soundproofing in there at all. We used to have to wear special. Um, headsets uh, <coughs> to deaden the noise, mm -hmm. but uh, there are ten crew, two pilots, uh, two navigators, five um, air electronics people, air signalers and air electronics of uh, officers, and then there was one engineer. So uh, what kind of equipment did they have? Well, they had um, sonar, so we, we carried sonar, sonar, sonar boys. These things were about uh, oh, uh, three meters long and about um, about um, I don't know seventy centimeters in diameter. And as I said, they were probably the same size as a mini, and we used to throw lots of them out. You couldn't recover them. No. Uh, so uh, they were either uh, we used to drop them in a pattern of three, usually with two what we call passive ones, which were just listening, and then one active one in the middle, which was actually pinging, sending out signals and tracking, tracking its own breeds. So that was one of our, that was one of our main uh, uh, operational roles. We used to, uh, as armament, we used to carry depth charges, so we could drop them on the, on the submarine. We used to practice dropping those, that was quite exciting. Uh, so, um, there was a radar, which was very similar to the Vulcan radar, uh, had a range out to 150 miles. And then you had various range options on it that you could come down to and you could get down to um, a quarter mile uh, r range, um, which uh, <coughs> allowed you to actually see snorting submarines. You could actually see uh, the radar return. Yeah. So those were the, the radar was the uh, main uh, device that we used for detection. Uh, once we'd 
um, located at something that was suspicious with a dendrite or something that was in the pattern, yeah? and then track it for hours usually. And the other thing they had was a thing called Autolycus, which could actually detect snorting submarines. It could actually detect the um, diesel fumes. So we were down to 50 feet, uh, the fumes coming off a snorting submarine, and uh, you could uh, follow the, the scent like a bloodhound until you found, found the thing. Wow. So uh, that was our main role. Uh, our uh, primary role, our secondary role, was um, search and rescue. So we used to have to uh, regularly be on search and rescue st uh, standby. So if there was any uh, emergency at sea, we were called out at short notice and off we'd go and uh, set up, uh, if anybody was missing, we'd set up a, a search, different kinds of search patterns to, uh, <coughs> to try to find what it was we were looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, uh, once when we were in Singapore on detachment, uh, a javelin uh, fighter went down in the sea and we were called out and uh, I looked for that but we never found anything in that case. And would you have uh, air droppable uh, life raft or lunar yeah. systems? Or... Yeah, huge um, uh, dinghies that uh, could fit, uh, um, you know, uh, fit about 20 people in. Yeah. Inflatable ones. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the shepherd and for those long patrols and, and searches, did you have a, a galley on board for? Yes, and... yeah, we had a galley, and we used to have a famous dish called a honker stew. If you know that, what that means? No. Yeah. You mean honking means? Means being sick. All right. <laughs> 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 so uh, yeah, we used to uh, yeah, there was a small galley, a, a couple of um, <clears throat> hot plates, and, uh, and, and another, and then one of the. Uh, we for every trip we used to uh, have to <coughs> put in a um, an order for uh, for supplies and we had a great big box that we used to fill up. Uh, so we used to go around the crew saying what do you want today, you know, oh, I love this, and that. but uh, just uh, the uh, the baseline was the honkers too, which was <laughs> anything and everything used to go into a big pot. <laughs> Brilliant. And you were there for was it three, three years. Three years. Did you get sick of it? Literally, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was very prone to sickness, actually, uh, right. particularly in those things. Uh, but uh, after about two weeks of flying, you got you got used to it, and then. But if you went on leave for two weeks and came back, it came back again, and right. you had to get used to it again. So, uh, I uh, um, often used to say, "Must have a plastic bag." Should I say this on there? Yeah. Instead of a plastic bag, I'd, I'd be watching the radar, so I had my head in the plastic bag, looking out of the, <laughs> the plastic bag at the radar as we were going. <laughs> Switch the intercom off. Breathe. <laughs> um, but the other thing that might be of interest that we had one out in <clears throat> Singapore used to get really bad, uh, severe aggressive thunderstorms and the aeroplane used to go up and down quite uh, significantly losing and gaining height and uh, because it was 15 hours you had a toilet on board, an Elsa and uh, one of these, uh, we had one of these storms uh, <coughs> the aeroplane went down, the Elsa content stayed with <laughs> oh. <laughs> just came out and <coughs> oh, oh no 
Was there much um, much difference flying at fifty feet on a patrol like that between the cold North Atlantic and the and the tropical Singapore area? Like, was it different? just a, just the temperature? Um, the uh, in in uh, Singapore it was really really hot. Yeah. You had to have all the windows open. The, the airplanes weren't pressurized, for instance. You couldn't go above eight thousand feet in them. Right. So you used to have all the windows open and. Uh, but we had no cooling in them when you go into the Vulcan. We had the air-cooled um, flight suits. Right, of course. And uh, you always found the engines quite reliable? You didn't lose engines on these patrols? or uh, No, I never lost a, 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 an engine. Would you, would you shut one down? Um, oh, yeah, you could shut yeah, them down. Just yeah. to, to prolong yeah, you your... Should, yeah, you could shut two down. Um, they only they, they, uh, because there were piston engines. Uh, the uh, magnetos used to uh, play up a bit on startup. I mean, for quite a few occasions we'd get in and get uh, <coughs> go through flight checks, and the magnetos work, and uh, we had to shut down and uh, either abandon the sortie or uh, change aircraft. Okay. Ah, having said that, we did have one engine blow up. Uh, we'd been on the detachment out of Singapore. Uh, for three months. Um, I was engaged to Andrea at that time. Uh, we were to get back from Singapore, it was about five legs. We used to go to uh, Butter, the Malaya, uh, Africa, um, uh, Cyprus, Malta, and then back. Uh, well, we got back as far as Malta. Uh, we were just uh, <coughs> uh, the day we were due to go home. Uh, we took off and got, I don't know, two or three hours into the Mediterranean. One of the engines blew up. And uh, we weren't past our uh, point of no return, so um, we went back to Malta, and uh, we had to stay there for two weeks. I was flying back to get married. Oh. <laughs> so um, anyway, the engine eventually arrived. Two weeks later, I ended up back in Ballykelly. Andrew was in England, and I had to get back from Ballykelly uh, to England. And uh, I can remember uh, getting. Uh, and landing and trying to get away as quickly as I could and one of the guys said oh will you take me up to the mess so I uh, I said okay but I've got, to, I've got to be quick so I went quite quickly around the perimeter tracks and uh, I was tracked by the uh, wing commander Adbin who eventually stopped me and said you were breaking the speed limit and I said yes I know sir and uh, eventually he said right you're banned from the airfield for uh, yeah, uh, for two weeks what he didn't know was, of course, I was leaving the airfield at that time to go on two weeks leave. <laughs> so it was all right. It worked out perfect. <laughs> and I just got back in time to get married. Four yeah. days later, we were back in the Valley Kelly and I was flying again. Wow. Okay. And so tell me about the next transition we were posted away from that squadron. Right, at the end of um, the three years in Valley Kelly, uh, Historically, what happened was uh, that if you'd been in Ballykelly, your next tour was overseas in uh, uh, Singapore, where we had a squadron out in Singapore, and that's what happened. Um, we got the posting notice, we got packed, uh, all the boxes were uh, uh, sent off uh, to be transported out to Singapore by sea at that particular time. And, uh, and you get two weeks embarkation leave when you go overseas like that, so we were going... We, we went home, I was, we were staying with Andrew's parents. 
Uh, about halfway through that, I got a telegram saying, don't go to Singapore, go to uh, Gaiden, as it was then, and start navigating the journey. Okay. So we, ne we never got there, which was a pity, really, because uh, the lifestyle out there at that time was extremely good. Yeah, yeah I've heard about that. <laughs> <laughs> good money, too. You used to get overseas uh, allowances, and they, you could you could live on the overseas allowance. So what was happening, you know, you know standard salary was just going into the bank yeah, yeah. well and so uh, you now going to be training as a navigator yeah so we, we went off to Gaydon uh, so we did um, I think about six months again on the basic trainer that was on the varsity uh, just learning how to uh, how to uh, Position find basically using the uh, the techniques that uh, were available at that time. So there was no GPS or anything like that. You were using uh, there were electronic devices. There were uh, a, th a thing called Omega, which would allow you to uh, get a position. It was an hyperbolic uh, uh, transmission pattern where you could uh, the receiver could um, tell you which lines on this hyperbolic pattern you were, and you found the intersection of them and your position. That was, but it was uh, quite temperamental. And then you add all the um, radio aids, radio beacons, um, a, thing, a thing called TACAN, uh, which was a, a system that gave you range and bearing. Most of the things gave you just a bearing. So to obtain a position from a bearing, you had to have at least two lines crossing, ideally at right angles, so you knew yep. where you were. Uh, but usually we were uh, practicing uh, getting three uh, position line fixers. Uh, from that, uh, you could uh, determine uh, how much wind had been blowing. So you had an, a position indicator which uh, told you where you were uh, relative to moving air. Didn't tell you where your ground position was. Yeah. And then uh, the difference between your air position and your fix, your ground position, gave you how much wind had been blo uh, blowing and in which direction over the period of time between... Uh, uh, taking uh, the uh, uh, the previous fixes, right, and that was it. That uh, it, it, we spent six months learning how to do that at one hundred and eighty knots. Which, uh, when you first get in and try to do it, it's quite uh, a, a quite uh, a difficult task. Um, inevitably, you find yourself way behind the aeroplane. So. Um, but it was just experience. As you uh, um, develop experience, you were able to keep on top, uh, keep ahead of the airplane. You had to get ahead of the airplane to decide uh, what to do, uh, what to do next. So I used to take a fix, and you used to have to work out within six minutes. You had to dr ahead, what we call directing ahead, to where you will be in six, uh, six minutes' time, uh, to determine which heading to fly next to get to where you were going. Okay. And what was the varsity like as an aircraft? Oh, it was just a mini Shackleton, just very, very slow and very noisy. Uh, no, uh, no air conditioning, no, uh, uh, no, uh, no noise suppression, but only two engines instead of four. Right. Okay. Again, uh, well, I had mentioned it, but uh, most of the navigators fly backwards in the dark. <laughs> yeah. So you didn't really see where you were going? You... No, no, uh, the, uh, when you were 
you was when you were an initiate uh, navigator, you were so intent on the uh, electronics that you never looked out the window. And uh, they were all trying to encourage you to go have a look out of the window to see your aim, uh, you know, to get a visual fix, which was uh, probably more accurate than the, what the electronics were telling us at the time. Yeah. Okay. So after that six months and you're all trained up, where did you next go to? Well, then you went on to uh, Stradishill in, uh, <coughs> in Norfolk, Barry St. Edmunds, and that's when you uh, <coughs> flew the Domini. So it was quite a transition from the low, uh, slow, low, slow varsity. Uh, we used to fly at 8,000 feet, there's no uh, um, uh, I've got the word now. <laughs> uh, what's the word for. Uh, Trying to think myself. Well, yeah, in the Vulcan we could fly at 50,000 feet uh, yeah. and uh, just sit in our shirt sleeves. Right, when, when you so, got the. because it's pressurised and. Um, that's yeah. the word, yeah. Why couldn't I think of that? <laughs> it's got the old age, I think. <laughs> so there's no uh, air conditioning. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, right, so. and how long were you on the Domini for? Uh, again, about six months. So you took it from uh, there, because now you're going at 250 knots something, 250, 300 knots, something like that. And uh, but a similar kind of setup in the back um, uh, with the uh, same kind of uh, fixing is uh, nothing like uh, a GPS, just um, uh, radio beacons and uh, and uh, the Takan thing was the uh, probably the easiest thing to use because you got, a, you got a range and a bearing. So you knew where the beacon was, you could plot the uh, the bearing and then just plot a range along it and that's, that's where you were. And they were quite accurate. Whereas um, position line fixing with um, radio beacons was not very accurate. Uh, uh, and what usually, usually happened, if you took a three line fix, they didn't all cross at the same point. So you ended up uh, with three lines and what we called a coptat in the middle, a triangular shape. And if you can imagine lines going like this. So uh, you had then to um, uh, determine whereabouts in that coptat you, you were positioned and right. then, then do the DRing ahead again to, uh, to find out where you would be in six minutes time. And uh, six minutes was the uh, conventional way of doing it because it was a tenth. Of an hour, right? Yep. Okay. It's easier to do the mental calculations using six minutes than, than say five minutes or three minutes. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. Hey, uh, once you'd uh, learned how to do it with all the equipment uh, uh, working properly, um, then the rest of the time was learning how to do it without the equipment. So um, they used to um, degrade. Oh, they didn't degrade. They used to just switch bits off uh, until eventually you didn't have any fixing aids at all. What you had is um, uh, your air position indicator, which told you where you were relative to the air mass you were in, and then uh, you had to fix somehow. So uh, you'd revert to astro navigation. So you'd be taking position lines off the sun. At night, you're doing be doing it off the stars, so your whole electronic stuff was switched off. 
and that was quite difficult. Um, uh, the electronic position I fixed was much more accurate than the uh, the Astro one. Okay. So you ended up with big, uh, large cocked hats. And uh, I can remember once I had a cocked hat which was bigger than the North Sea. Okay, and so where did you move on to from there? Well, graduated from there. Um, at the moment, at that time, there was a, a backlog in Navigator Training, uh, the Operational Conversion Unit. Um, I'd elected to go on to uh, the Vulcans at that time, so they sent me to uh, to hold at uh, Strike Command headquarters in High Wycombe, uh, in the um, nuclear planning cell there. Did that for six months. Okay. So what, what did that involve? Uh, planning the routes to your nuclear targets. So uh, once we got on the squadron, we each had <coughs> routes to follow. Yeah. Uh, that was the origin of the route, so somebody had decided what the target was going to be. Somebody had to do the planning to get the look into the uh, to the target. So the uh, the crew that was going to fly it didn't actually do the the, uh, the the planning. It was all done for them, and it was then presented to them and said, "That's your target." Yeah, and here's the plan. Off you go. Yeah. yeah, But they had to do it for the whole of the V force. Okay, yeah. and and did the targets regularly change so that there's always new planning being? Uh, no, no, they didn't. Okay. Uh, would it always be cities or bases? What were your targets? <laughs> um, well, I think targets are. Yes, there'd have been all sorts of things. Yeah. You can't think of anything other things really other than military targets and cities and yeah. things like that. But going back to the planning, because you had to plan for the whole of the V force. And uh, during uh, the build-up to a, a possible uh, outbreak of war, uh, the V-Force would have been uh, dispersed all over the UK uh, with four aircraft at each base. Yep. So they had to plan. Uh, remember, all those aircraft would be taking off within two minutes. So you can imagine what it would be like in the sky. Yeah. So they had to plan all the uh, departure uh, routes to deconflict uh, where they were going. Right. So, uh, so you've got a plan for them to be able to take off all at once and not go through airline routes and not go there through... There wouldn't be any airlines flying. How do they get them all down in two minutes, though? Well, the two-minute bit is the, the bit that says there's been a launch in, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, USSR. Yeah. All right. The bit, there would have been a build-up. It wouldn't have suddenly uh, happened. There would have been a build-up over weeks... And then days, then hours. So you all know it's coming sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, this, uh, sitting in the airplane, uh, <coughs> they weren't sat in there uh, just waiting. Uh, there'd been this big build-up and uh, the um, the reaction time was reduced as the as the build-up occurred until eventually you were sat in this two-minute. You were actually in the airplane at that time, but you were, um, there were 15 readinesses, 24 hours or so. So in that scenario, if it had come to that, you can imagine that if they'd grounded all the airlines, everybody would have known what was going to happen. And... Well, it would have been on the news. You couldn't yeah, have... Uh... It would have been mass panic. Yeah. It wouldn't have, really, the whole country. Yeah, having said that, I, 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 I don't know about the airlines, but I, I just... Um, 
assume that that would be the case in the UK. I don't know about the rest of the world because what we were looking at were um, attacks on the UK. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. Um, okay, so from that nuclear planning. Uh, right, from there, yeah, six months uh, uh, there. There was an interesting uh, event, if you're interested. Uh, because I was new on the, on the station, uh, uh, they said, uh, security officer came. I said, oh, we want you to do something for us. Uh, I said, okay, uh, what do you want me to do? He said, we want you to go to the uh, nuclear bunker. This is an underground thing, you know. Uh, and we want you to um, uh, use this identity card and uh, ask to go in. So I said, oh, all right. But they said, here's the identity card. It wasn't me. But when you get there, it said, use your, use your own name. And, uh, <coughs> and say, right, I'll go in. Off I went. Security uh, <laughs> set up there. Uh, and from the identity card, which wasn't mine, yeah. uh, I said, who I was, me. Looked at it, looked at me. Okay, sir. Opened the door. Because I, they didn't think I'd get, I'd get in. <laughs> when I got in, uh, where are you going, sir? Uh, well, I want to go to the war room. Oh, okay. Off we went, down this corridor. I got in the war room and I said, ah, you better call the security officer because I shouldn't be here. <laughs> oh, and amazing how, it, how I did it. Yeah, wow. I don't know what happened to the young man that was on the, uh, on the gate. Anyway, from there we uh, went off to, um, uh, to uh, the Operation Conversion Unit on Vulcan. Which was Finningley in uh, Yorkshire again, yeah. and spent. Uh, oh no, we didn't. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. We went to uh, the Strike Command Bombing School right. at Lindholm and spent uh, six months there learning how to operate the Vulcan system, but in a lower, uh, a lower speed aircraft. Right, yep. So we did about. Uh, I did another role in there, maybe 20, uh, 20 sorties, building up uh, <clears throat> uh, different uh, kind of type of uh, attack profiles uh, and uh, eventually uh, uh, graduated from that course, uh, then went on to uh, Vulcans at, uh, where did they say? Uh, the the um, bombing school was at Finningley. Yeah. Oh, it wasn't. Uh, um, it was at Lindome, yeah. RF Lindome, Finningley came later. Uh, Lindome, six months there on the uh, navigation and bombing, bombing systems course, and then to um, Scanton in Lincolnshire, where the uh, Vulcan Operational Conversion Unit was. Spent another, I can't remember exactly, they were all usually in about six month periods. Uh, six months period, we joined up with a crew at that point. Uh, that we flew with for the rest of our uh, Vulcan operational tour. Yeah. Uh, flew after there again, just doing uh, different kind of attacks, because we used to do high level attacks, low level attacks, medium level attacks. Uh, 
the different kind of uh, uh, conventional bombs we used to uh, practice bombs and then nuclear bombs as well. Oh, one nuclear bomb. So once we graduated from there, we moved down to Waddington uh, to uh, 101 Squadron. Uh, joined them, uh, them and uh, became an operational crew. Right. Stayed there for three years and moved on. So when you joined 101 Squadron as a, a full crew, fully trained, straight out of the system, uh, was it unusual for a new crew to join a squadron? Would, would it be once in a while they got a new crew or would there would be new crews coming through? Oh, all the time, yeah. Probably on a monthly basis. I can't remember, okay. but uh, you know, as they were, uh, they were passing through. So it was, um, it was quite a standard routine for initiating you guys into the squadron routine and into the... Yeah, yeah. So what happened uh, first was that um, they had to have a qualified uh, Vulcan uh, experienced pilot go first, uh, first with the co-pilot. Uh, it was our first tour, the first uh, uh, sortie. And uh, that was quite uh, an experience because... Um, When he came into land, the copac flying is uh, undershot, <laughs> and uh, the uh, the experienced pilots were, got quite excited about that and shouted, "Keep it on the ground! Keep it on the ground!" So we in the back didn't realise what was happening, but he'd just gone off to one side, and uh, but uh, everything was all right there. After that, everything was okay. There was no problem. So. Um, so uh, once uh, the co-pilot and his turn, the, the new uh, captain came on uh, with the experienced pilot and uh, went through a few sorties with the uh, with the QFI there, with the flying instructor, and then uh, we were let off by ourselves on our training uh, you know, uh, standard, we just um, dropped into the standard training pattern for a crew going through the system. Okay. And did you remain with the same crew all the way through for the next three years? Yes. Yeah. So you would have become very close? Oh yeah, crew. yeah, it was just, just mates, you know, okay. as you would be in New Zealand. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we used to go around together, um, you know, party together. Or living on the station? Uh, no, uh, one guy, was the captain wasn't married. Um, the electronics officer, he was uh, probably, he was uh, uh, much older than the, uh, uh, I was and the other navigator was uh, younger than him. So, uh, yeah, Larry Sullivan was, uh, he was married, I was married. Uh, Co-pilot wasn't married, he was quite a young guy. Yeah. And the captain wasn't married. So I was living off base, and um, oh, the uh, electronics officer was living off base as well in Newark. I lived in Lincoln. Can't remember where I Sullivan used to uh, used to uh, to live. He came off Canberra actually to to fly around. Okay. So um, I guess that. As a crew, you'd have periods where you're on duty and on standby, and then you'd have 
a reasonable break in between and other crews are doing that. Um, yeah, you could, took it in turn to do the um, the Q, what we call QRA, Quick Reaction Alert, where you actually had, you were living on the station in the mess, the crews in the, uh, in the mess. Uh, and then um, that came up maybe, yeah, there, there were 10 crews on the squadron, so you, you can imagine uh, there was one of those on every day, mm -hmm. uh, seven days a week. Um, so you just rotate it through, uh, maybe one every... 10 days, I suppose. Okay. And the rest of the, your time, you're doing uh, what we call uh, just basic uh, basic training. So we go and do high-level sorties, low-level sorties, uh, circuits, circuits and bumps. Just get current on everything. And yeah. Yeah. But as you progress through your tour, you become senior crew, and at that point you were given perks. Uh, so we, became, we actually became the display crew. So we used to go uh, quite regularly to the States, Canada, around the UK. How long would it take you to get across to the States? Uh, well, depending where you go. We used to go into Goose Bay in Canada, so about uh, four and a half hours. Okay. Yeah. 50,000 feet. Oh, 45 or something like that. And uh, how how were you received by American and Canadian audiences? Were they pretty thrilled by? Oh yeah, yeah, they, they were. Uh, yeah, they hadn't anything like it really. They had the uh, they had the B fifty twos, which were big lumbering things with eight, eight engines and things. But this was uh, it was more like a fighter. In fact, they, we used to do one of the things uh, we used to do is what called fighter affiliation. Yeah. So we used to go off and operate as a target. So uh, the uh, the Phantoms, uh, they were then really <coughs> used to come and, uh, and chase us. Uh, they used to shoot us down all the time. But, uh, uh, but we could outturn uh, uh, a lightning, they used to be lightnings as well. Yeah. We could outturn the lightning at, uh, or turn inside the lightning at, uh, at 50,000 feet. Wow, that's amazing. Because of the large wing and they had tiny little supersonic wings. When you're manoeuvring like that, though, doing those tight turns, and you're sitting there in the dark going backwards, you must have got a little bit sort of turned around of which way you're going. And uh, well, yes, you didn't know which was left and right. Or, uh, so a <coughs> radar could be either north-oriented, a bit like the GPS you have in your car, tracker, or track-oriented. Yeah. So it didn't get, you know, you, you were saying turn left or right. Uh, and if it was north oriented, it was over there, and you, your left was there, and their right was. <coughs> yeah, gotcha. So, um, I guess you were doing bombing practices as well in, in your general routine. Yeah, we used to do live bombing, but uh, with um, we did drop at some live thousand pounders, okay. uh, but mainly with 25 pound practice bombs. So you used to uh, go and uh, onto the uh, bombing ranges, uh, usually in the in the in the wash area, just around Norfolk. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about sort of an average day then when you're on standby. What sort of hours we sort of sit around waiting for? Maybe the call that never came, sort of thing. Well, it would be a 24-hour duty, and 
you wouldn't just be sitting around. What we would do would be we'd go down to the um, the target map rooms and study our targets. So that's when we looked at that stuff that we uh, <coughs> um, developed in High Wycombe. So uh, there's a big portfolio basically of stuff mm -hmm. that you needed. Uh, all, the, all the charts, all the uh, aids that we used to actually find the targets had all been produced. Uh, so we used to just uh, go in there for a, a two or three hours. Uh, pilots used to go through their routines. Electronic officers used to look at where the sand sites were and where the, um, uh, all the jamming stations were and everything like that. What would you do? Uh, there was a plan because he had all the uh, <coughs> uh, electronic countermeasures uh, to uh, to control the, the chaff and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we would be looking at the routes, uh, where you know the heights, speeds, descent points, no go points. All the um, what we call waypoints on the way, the fixing points that we were updating our uh, <coughs> systems with, just really trying to get a, a, a mental picture of <coughs> what it uh, was we were going to uh, going to do. The co-pilot would be looking at um, the fuel, uh, the procedures that we'd go through to uh, as we went along at high level, low level. Mm -hmm. Uh, escape once the weapon had been released. So we, you know, it, it had to become second nature to you so that uh, in, in a situation where you had nuclear weapons going off around you, then you'd be able to uh, concentrate on what to do. Right, right, right. So that, that was the main as aspect of it. So you're doing that duty every 10 days, would would every 10 days there be a different target that might be given to you? No. Or was it always no, the same? always the same target. Yeah. So you must have, by the end of three years of looking at that, every 10 days, you must have been pretty... Oh, yeah. Yeah, you knew, you knew it, you know, you knew exactly what you do every minute down this, this route. Yeah. What, what's coming next? We're looking ahead to see... Uh, Oh, basically to keep the system uh, as accurate as you could so that once you get, got to the target then uh, you would find the target and uh, be able to release the, uh, the weapon successfully. Yeah. And everything's going to be second nature because you've gone through it so... Yeah, and you've done it in practice. Yeah. Did it ever get to the point that perhaps some of the people that have been doing this for a long time just wanted to go and do it to get it out of the way, or no, was it never no, no. We actually never actually talked about it outside that outside that uh, that, that uh, planning room. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Right. If the balloon had gone up and you had been scrambled to go and do this, you'd be. By yourself, or would there be other Vulcans with you? Or? Oh no, the the whole the whole of the Vulcan force would be airborne in two minutes. But they'd all be going to different 
targets. Different targets, yeah. And there'd be no escort for you, or no. And there's probably a good chance you wouldn't come back. Uh, a, a good chance, probably a hundred percent. Not come back, and not. But uh, the only reason we would have gone would have been that there'd been a launch of nuclear weapons onto the UK. Mm. So you can imagine what the targets of those things would be. The, the airfields would be the first thing they would take out. So the airfields wouldn't be there, so we couldn't come back. In fact, we didn't carry enough fuel to get back. Okay. That's so confident. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, they took some of the time it's so far away. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting, though. You think about all that infrastructure and all that training and all that for, for no result, which... All that money. Yeah, well, that money... For, for absolutely no result. And of course, the other side's doing the same thing with their bombers. And all you can think of is, thank God there was no result, you know. It's... Well, the thing is, they're still doing it. Yeah. It hasn't gone away. The Vulcan's no. gone away. The, the preparation for a nuclear war is still there. Yep, yep. Because basically the Vulcan was replaced with missiles, wasn't it? Uh, no, by the tornado. Oh, of course, yeah. Missiles were there all the time. The the, um, the manned aircraft would have been in there uh, behind uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. So the target that we would be attacking would have been hit by nuclear weapons before we got there. We were just going in there to make sure that... Make sure it all yeah. got through and... So that was one of the problems, was that uh, you can imagine that, that the nuclear missiles that had gone in before us, they would be actually popping off as we were going in. Yeah. And you fly into that big cloud of... Yeah, yeah. But what happens in, in that scenario if you if your target city or target you know, base or whatever, you get there and it's already just been wiped out, are you still going to drop your Oh, yes. Yeah. We don't want to bring it back. I'll take yeah. it away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, tell me about the general life on the squadron outside of the flying. Um, was it a happy squadron? And oh, yeah, yeah. We've often said that that was probably one of the uh, happiest, most exciting times of our, uh, of our working life. Uh, you can imagine what it would be like. Um, uh, I mean, uh, it was just like... Any squadron in the RF, whether it be a fighter squadron or a bomber squadron, you, the, the, half of them were mad anyway. Well, no, they were young and uh, impressionable, but uh, yes, the uh, I was married, yeah. uh, relatively newly married. We had a, uh, our first daughter was only uh, probably a year old, so um, I was probably a little restrained uh, compared to the younger guys yeah. that. Um, uh, were in there, and uh, I, I mean, we used to uh, quite regularly have. Uh, we, I told you about fighter affiliation. We used to get the guys over from the fighter squadrons. There were only Coningsby, which is a stone's throw away, and uh, for mess nights. And uh, uh, you've never seen anything like it in in your life. I might, might know about them, but uh, it was really, uh, really a rowdy affair. <coughs> uh, the dining in nights where we. Uh, 
we used to go, there were two types of dining in night. Dining in nights were the, it was all male and uh, we didn't have any female uh, air crew then, and there are now. Yeah. Uh, so uh, those were the, <coughs> the dining in nights. They, they got really rowdy, things got really loud. Uh, lots of <coughs> uh, drinking, and then we used to uh, play mess of what we call mess games, uh, which uh, they used to end up breaking things, breaking people and and uh, furniture. And uh, so, <coughs> yes, uh, so uh, squadron life was uh, amazing, really, and uh, we really enjoyed it. And then the other, uh, once you got away from the squadron into uh, what you might call uh, the Air Force in the round, uh, it's much quieter out there than it was. Yeah. yeah. But what about um, the ground crew working on your aircraft? Did you have much to do with them? Or? No, that was uh, unfortunate, really, uh, during uh, that period of time. Uh, we never really saw any ground crew other than the crew chief. Right. Because what used to happen was that uh, on a typical sortie day, you would turn up at flight planning. You'd spend an hour flight planning, and in flight planning, uh, there are uh, um, airmen and airwomen providing the services that you needed to, uh, to do the flight planning. But there wasn't any ground, what we call ground crew guys uh, with you know spanners and things. <laughs> they were all in the hangars. Yeah. Uh, from uh, flight planning, we used to go and have a meal. Uh, that used to take an hour, and, and the meals were absolutely outstanding. It was like having a, a dining night every every time you flew. Uh, big huge buffets and things. Anyway, we used to go and have our pre-flight meal. From there, we used to jump into a, a coach, a bus, uh, five of us, drive out to the airplane where we would meet one guy. We'd be already plugged into the airplane with his earphones on, so he uh, immediately climbed up this ladder into this box, spoke to this guy through the intercom, closed the door and flew off. Uh, he got back, landed, guy came out, Crew chief plugged in, earphones on, talked to him, door open, got out, got in a bus, <coughs> back to uh, operations. Uh, you do now's debrief, something going through all, <coughs> go and have another meal, another hour, and get changed, get showered, go home. Right, right. So that was a, a typical salty. So you never actually met. The yeah. guys that kept the things flying. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> tell me about the procedures. If anything went wrong with your aircraft in the air and you had to get out, um, tell me about that. Right. So uh, if we had to abandon the aircraft, uh, the two pilots had ejection seats. The three rear crew didn't have any assisted a way of escaping. So the standard procedure would be, uh, if you were at a high level, uh, the uh, pilots would uh, maintain control as long as they could. Uh, they would probably jettison the canopy, ready to go, mm -hmm. but then they would, uh, <coughs> or the crew 
very accrued to uh, abandon the aircraft. So what happened was one of the crew, which was the navigator radar, which would be basically, mm -hmm. would have to get out of their seat, onto the, the door, the entrance door, which had a ladder strapped to it, uh, <coughs> open the door, which would go down, and then uh, we would have to climb on. There were two hydraulic uh, jacks on each side. You used to have to uh, turn sideways, sit on one of the jacks with your legs on the other one, and throw yourself out backwards uh, into the airstream, and okay. uh, away you go. Now, several crews had actually done that. Um, so uh, that was at a high level. If you were at low level, it was a different kettle of fish, because uh, if the nose was down, then that blocked the, the escape route of the, the rear crew because the uh, nose wheel was just behind the entrance exit door. Okay. So you still had to go through the same procedure, turn around, go out really backwards and hit the nose wheel with a parachute and bounce off. Yeah. Uh, I don't think anybody had ever done that, although several Vulcans did crash. Yeah, I remember the one that came out to New Zealand and yeah. got all the way yeah. down to Britain and the three in the back got killed. Yes, yeah. they were on approach to Heathrow or something. Yeah. Well, there was one here. There was one here that was very close to crashing. That's there. right. It, it knocked some wheels off, I think. Yeah, yeah, it was skewed it, yeah. Yeah. But they got away with it, didn't they? Yeah, they got it back to Ahakia, um, managed to get it down, and it was repaired here over about six months. Yeah. And flew it home. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, that was the opening of Wellington Airport. There's some actually really good footage and photographs of it hitting the bank. All oh, right, mm. I haven't seen that. Yeah, there's a few few of them around. A lot of people at that air show. So. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And of course, the same day, the uh, Sunderland scraped its belly along the runway as well, because yes. there's a big sink there, and of course, there's a new new airport. Everybody didn't know that, so um, yeah, it ripped its belly up. Mm. But that also managed to get down without killing anybody, so that was good. Yeah. <clears throat> so the, the uh, escape route for the rear crew wasn't very good. The, the, the aircraft was actually designed with the ejection seats for the rear crew, but uh, for some reason or other, they uh, abandoned the idea. Probably budget, I guess. I think they probably came out at the bottom as well. Oh. Which wow. wouldn't have been a good idea. No. Would have been interesting. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So uh, anyway, it never got in there. Yeah. So um, yes, we used to practice on the ground, but it was a bit uh, just going through the motions. Yeah. But w when you did the um, air displays uh, as the, the display crew, um, did you have the full crew on board? Yeah. Oh, okay. So everybody got to have a go. Yeah. But going backwards in the dark. But I always used to get out of my seat. And there were about two rooms of steps up to where the platform was, where to ejection seat. You just squeeze through sideways. So I used to hang on to one each side, just stand there. And then they were doing all these uh, very steep turns, climbs. And... Right. Brilliant. Uh, we had a terrain following the radar. So in the operation, uh, we had uh, blast screens on the windscreen. So uh, the uh, aircraft would have been uh, flying. Our training height was 300 feet, but I think we used to talk about what we would do in practice and we would be down as low as we, we could, 50 feet. 
but the train following radar would be taking the airplane over automatically. Uh, but the other thing was these um, nuclear ballistic missiles going off. Uh, there would be f nuclear flashes. Uh, so uh, we had blast screens on the um, pilot's canopy. Uh, they could actually shut them all down, but uh, the uh, standard operating procedure was the, the captain side would be shut down and he would be monitoring the ter terrain following radar. The crew pilot's side would be up so we could actually see the ground, <laughs> just in case we wanted to. And we used to have to wear an eye patch, one eye. Oh, all right. So if a flash came, blinded him, we just swapped it over. <coughs> well, nobody said what would happen if two went off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that must have been pretty exciting in a big jet like that going at 50 feet over the terrain and, and knowing that your captain's not actually looking out the window. <laughs> yes, we did practice it. Yeah. Wow. How comfortable was it uh, in a long flight, did you end up getting quite uncomfortable, or was it? No, not really. No, the uh, the seats were quite spacious. Um, the uh, you sat on a uh, a dinghy, and uh, the parachute was at the back, mm -hmm. so you strapped in. <clears throat> and what about the noise levels? And the... no, the noise levels and because uh... you're all in front of the jets and in front of the engines. Yeah. yeah. So none of the noise levels were okay. We used to wear, um, on that field there, they just had their cloth uh, hats on, but we used to wear boondoes all the time. Oh yeah. When we were flying. Okay. If, the, if you had had to go and drop your bomb, and then as you say, you haven't got enough fuel to get back and your base might not be there, and I guess you had a predetermined place that you would, yeah. you would go to. What was the plan for after that? Would you think about having to bomb up again and go again? No, you could, we wouldn't do that. Right. No, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have the bombs. No. no. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you go into a base somewhere or like a, another. Well, it would have to be. A, it would have to be an airfield with a nine thousand foot runway. We actually never discussed what we would do at the end of the sortie. I think I know what you would do. You'd find a bar. <laughs> well, it depends where you landed. Yeah. And uh, there might have not been any alcohol. We were <laughs> we got oh, to true. <laughs> <laughs> um, Was there any form of self-defence on the aircraft? You didn't have guns or missiles or anything that could defend yourself? Um... Yes, at one time we had 9mm pistols, but I can't uh, remember exactly where that was. Just on your person, mm -hmm. yeah, okay. Right. But there's, there's nothing else, there's no systems in the aircraft itself for no. self-defence, so pretty much you could outfly most things, I suppose, or if you were attacked by another fighter, you could try and outfly them. At a low level. Maybe? <laughs> no. no. Okay. Okay. Oh, um, one of the things that's sort of a, you know, almost an iconic thing is uh, with the Cold War is Russian aircraft and 
British or Allied aircraft sort of meeting on that um, that sort of international zone and escorting each other, looking at each other. Did, did that ever happen to you? You sort of often see the, the British yeah, fighters coming alongside the bears yes. and that sort no. of thing. No. Never had that? No. Do you think it would have been interesting if you had to have something come up? Well, they'd just look at each other, wouldn't they? they, yeah. they I don't think they'd even talk to each other. Although they'd be monitoring each other's frequencies, I'm sure. But that's that's always left to the uh, the fighter uh, squadrons to to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. True. Did Did you have any Kiwis on the squadron, or did you come across any? No. Uh, uh, you know, we had the three Aussies on a course. I did. Uh, I did a an advanced navigation course. Um, where we had three Aussies, yeah. two were navigators and one was a pilot. Okay. There's no reason why they, you, you guys shouldn't have gone. In fact, um, we went to a, a, a 60s up club meeting here where one of your ex-marshals uh, of the Royal Air Force, not Royal Air Force, the Royal New Zealand Air Force, gave a talk. Right. He was a navigator. But he never went on any of the, our advanced courses. We had two advanced courses. One was called the Staff NAV course, which taught you how to instruct navigation. And then we had one called the GDR assistance course, which taught you how to test aeroplanes. And that's how I got to uh, Oscombe Down. Okay. So who, who was that chap? Remember? Well, he runs the... Oh, I don't know whether he runs it, but he's um, one of the um, guys over at Hamilton, um, the pilot training school there. Oh, yeah, I know you mean, yeah. Yep. Tall, thin guy. Yeah. Um, his name will come to me. But, Fix, yeah. uh, Hercules navigator. Oh, so he was on the on the V Force at some stage. Oh no. Oh no. I, I'm just saying. Uh, you have guys here that could have come. The oh, yeah. way they they couldn't have come. So we had overseas. We had Italians, Germans, uh, Aussies. Yeah. What else? I have met one Kiwi that flew Vulcans. Um, Graham Gleason is in Auckland. All right. Yeah, interesting guy. <laughs> he was talking about that low-level uh, flying as well. I thought it was pretty neat flying low-level on a Vulcan. Uh, yes, was he a navigator or a pilot? Pilot. Yeah, well, it's a different world. Completely different world. You yeah. know, flying, flying backwards in the dark at 300 feet at uh, 300 knots and above is not the same as uh, sitting in a nice light cockpit uh, watching the world go by. Yeah. You know, they used to say, oh, look at that, look at this, look at that. And we used to go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like any for the minute. It's a big, big, big black screen going, yeah. <laughs> going, going backwards. So it was quite frustrating. It was frustrating, actually. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. Uh, where, where did you um, deploy to for exercises in the Balkans? Did you go overseas with... Uh, yeah, of Cyprus. There was a squadron in Cyprus uh, for a long time. So uh, uh, off, we used to go there, but we used to go all over the place. Uh, we went out uh, to the Far East, Singapore, up to Hong Kong in it. Right. Um, we used to go and do our winter training in Canada, Goose Bay. That was quite uh, an eye-opener over the tundra there. Nothing much there yeah. to see, but it um, would have been the closest thing we could have got to for the terrain that we would have to fly over to get to where we were going. Yeah. So we went to the States quite a lot. Okay. And were you 
interacting with the US Air Force. Yeah, the B-52s, yeah. Uh, we used to have bombing competitions. Uh, there, there was an annual bombing competition in the, in the States and there was uh, various bombing competitions in the UK. We used to uh, uh, go and so we used to fly off and they used to have a, um, a referee on, on, on an umpire on board. So oh, yeah. we used to, we could carry an extra person, we used to have to sit on the floor. Yeah. Uh, so so they, uh, we had an umpire on to see that we didn't cheat. Yeah. Uh, and uh, go fly off. We had uh, different targets. We'd fly around Europe, attacking things, dams and dam busters and things. Yeah. Um, big bridges and all sorts of things. And uh, come back and uh, the B-52s would do the same thing and then uh, and look at the results. Uh, what a cup. <laughs> And the American one was really good. Okay. And of course, the Vulcan wasn't really used in action until the Falklands, uh, was it? There was no conventional bombing before that anywhere else? Uh, no. It, they did wind up to uh, the nearest thing to the two minutes when the um, Cuban uh, uh, missile, crisis. missile crisis occurred. I think they got up to two minutes there or something. Okay, I didn't realise that. Yeah. Um, and the Falklands was just after you left? No, I, I was still in the Air Force, but I was at... You left the squadron. Yeah, I was uh, at uh, Blandford Forum, which is the... Uh, well, it's an, an army base, actually, but it was the uh, computer science training centre where they used to... Uh, where we used to teach all the... Uh, well mainly army officers, uh, a few RAF people came through, but on uh, automatic data processing, which was just becoming a big thing at that time. Mm -hmm. okay. So yeah, I was there when, uh, when it was all happening. Um, how did you view that? Were you thinking, oh, that would have been a good trip? Or... Well, it would have been a good trip. I mean, if what you tried to do, uh, uh, it would have been interesting. It would be interesting from the point of view that they uh, attacked at a height that they didn't train at. Okay. <laughs> I never trained at, you know, ten or fifteen thousand feet, which whatever height they went in at. We were either up at, you know, forty thousand feet, or we were down at three hundred feet. No, three hundred feet was our operation. Yeah. Oh, okay. So they didn't go in there at three hundred feet. They uh, decided it was too dangerous. Right, okay. So they, they dropped from 15... I think, yeah, somewhere between 10 15,000 feet. That's amazing accuracy, really, isn't it? Because they're hitting the... Well, it is, because unless you've done it yourself and know what, you know, the problems are and uh, and getting the the, uh, uh, the stick of bombs to do exactly what it did, that was an ideal. Couldn't have been better yeah. to... Uh, to uh, you know, you're trained to actually attack targets like that across the runway, not down it. So, that, and they got it exactly right. So, uh, I don't know what the guy was using as uh, his uh, uh, radar target because it's the radar that's doing it all the time. Or it's an integrated, what we call an integrated bombing navigation and bombing system. But essentially, the radar is in control. The, the machine is in control. It's sending signals up to the pilot to go left, go right, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and the navigators uh, just adjusting, finally adjusting the uh, uh, the the bombing cursors 
on a point, not necessarily the target, um, we were able to identify very radar significant points which weren't on the target, but we were able to put our uh, bomb cursor on that point, but the machine knew how to work out where the target was, All right. even though the, the thing, so we could finally align uh, the cursors on this offset, I used to call an offset, but the, the airplane knew where to go to find and drop the, the bomb. So I don't know what he would have used to, uh, I mean, there was a lot of uh, radar reflected material, the hangers, but they're too big. Yeah. You want something tiny to put your cursor on okay. to get the accuracy, which they got. He, he probably got the centre of the stick almost on the runway. Yeah, yeah amazing. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned earlier um, when we were chatting about how you had uh, involvement with the, the tornado program. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, uh, uh, where was I? Um, I? I left the Vulcan Squadron and went back to uh, the Strike Command Bombing School to instruct. So I did three years there. Mm -hmm. And uh, after that tour, I'd been. Uh, I'd been um, putting down, you had a thing called a 1369, which was an annual report of how good or bad you were, your job and all that stuff. But you had three options, uh, choices to put down. You could put down where you would want to go next. And uh, I think I used to put down, I wanted to go into the space program. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I used to put down... Uh, I wanted to do overseas tour somewhere, and I, but I always used to put down, I wanted to go on this advanced navigation course, GDA assistance course, and that's where they posted me eventually, because I've been in, an instructor twice, I've taught all about airborne systems, and uh, so they, they sent me off there, which is a year's course at RAF Cranwell, yeah. where you studied all the uh, navigation systems that uh, were in service, and all the ones that were coming into the, fu in, in the future, which included GPS. So GPS at that time was just a theory. So we learned a lot about the theory and the satellites, how it worked, how the um, things uh, could uh, find position. And of course, as a navigator, you saw that and you thought, well, if that comes in, I'm out of a job, mm. which is really what's happened. So at the end of that, uh, you um, you were sent off to jobs which are annotated uh, for guys who had passed that course. Well, they sent me back to... Uh, back to Finningley at that point, uh, uh, to teach about all these systems I'd just <laughs> said about three years. So anyway, I, I kept putting this thing on my uh, 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 1369, I got it. But at the end of uh, uh, the instructional tour, they said, right, you're going to Boscombe Down. And down there, there was, uh, um, and Boscombe Down is the place they, they, they bring in all the new aircraft, Navy, uh, Army, uh, Air Force, uh, to flight test them. So Boscombe Down is the uh, unit that uh, tests all airborne systems uh, that are coming in uh, to the Royal Air Force. And at that time, the uh, tornado was imminent. It hadn't actually been delivered, but uh, uh, it was imminent and uh, there's a unit at uh, Boscombe Down, and I believe it must be still there, called the Navigation and Radio Unit, radio unit which was uh, responsible for 
uh, flight testing all the navigational systems and radio systems on Call Africa coming into, into service with the, uh, the Navy, the Army and the Royal Air Force. So I was sent down as the senior navigator uh, to uh, be the Royal Air Force uh, eyes basically watching this, uh, this happen. Uh, the majority of the technical team were uh, civilians, civil service scientists who were doing the actual uh, analysis of the, uh, the, the weapon system. So there was uh, myself and then there were two other uh, uh, navigators that uh, worked with me to, uh, to essentially uh, uh, plan, plan the routes and, uh, and brief the crews as to exactly what we wanted. Uh, you know, we want to, uh, to, to test a particular uh, uh, bomb load or we want to, to test a particular um, uh, attack pattern and, uh, and different weapon combinations. So there was a whole program of uh, tests that had to be done. And so once the tests had been complete, then we used to get the data, recorded data off the aircraft and, <coughs> and analyse the, uh, the, uh, the results by uh, essentially they were head-up display uh, images that we used to uh, put through a system, a computer system where we could uh, track the aircraft and the weapon and um, estimate where the uh, weapon would have landed. So uh, we were looking for uh, uh, the accuracies that had been specified within the, uh, the planning phase for the tornado that, that were being achieved. So we spent, uh, we spent well, three years doing that, off and on, just with one aircraft, the first aircraft that came not into service, it was a prototype, uh, a prototype 4, P4 it was called, and uh, so we looked after all the navigation and, uh, and, uh, and then there was another unit within the same division that looked after the radios, and then there were divisions that looked after the, uh, the aerodynamics and the uh, all the other things that used to have to be checked before it was accepted into service. Of course, eventually it passed all the tests and uh, entered service and uh, and here we are, what, 40 years later is it, that uh, it's just about to exit, yeah. which is amazing. It was, doesn't seem like two minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, amazing. <coughs> so, um, by that stage, you've been... In the RF for probably 20 years. years, yeah. And did you have a fixed period that you had that you was signed up to serve for, or? Well, I was a what they called um, uh, what did they call it? I can't remember the exact name, but it was a it, it was a um, a service uh, commission to the fifty five, and then. Everybody leaves at 55, uh, but uh, with an option to leave. So uh, a lot of people were uh, didn't have that option, but I, I can't remember why I had that option. I had an option to leave, and um, I had finished um, from uh, Boscombe Down. I was sent to the, the ADP training centre at, uh, at Blanford Forum in, uh, in Dorset, where I was again teaching. So uh, you could ring up what you call your desk officer and say, well, you know, look in the crystal ball, what am I going to be doing? I think I was about uh, 41, 40 then. 
and he said, well, you won't probably go back to flying. You'll probably be on a desk job uh, uh, for the rest of your service because what happened after the ADP uh, uh, tour, I was sent to the Ministry of Defence in London to drive a desk right. again, looking after ours. Looking after the procurement of all the navigation and computing systems coming into the Royal Air Force. So I couldn't get away from it. Uh, so they said, You're either going to be doing that or you're going to be teaching. That's it. Yeah. Uh, so I decided, uh, Well, I'm, I'm only 40, I think I was 42 by the time I left. Uh, I'll go and have a look at something else. You know, it's time. I, if that's all I'm going to do. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, I put in my resignation papers and uh, I was in MOD a year, one year. So I put my uh, resignation papers in at the point I joined the Ministry of Defence because I was then commuting on a daily basis out from Chippenham, which is uh, hours into London and then across in the tube back out again. And it was a, you know, 40-hour day. Uh, Anyway, it wasn't because of that. I, I, I decided to leave, and uh, uh, what happened was a, a few officers down the uh, the corridor in MOD. There was this um, army lieutenant colonel. Yeah, it was lieutenant colonel at that time. Was well, who was doing a similar t a job to me, but one rank up uh, in computing. And what I, I I didn't know at the time, he had a PhD in computing and he'd been to MIT, the army had sent him off to MIT to do, the, he worked on the first kind of uh, uh, internet, wow. worldwide web solution. Wow. Uh, anyway, I, I went around to talk to him and I'd seen an advert in the paper for uh, a lecture at the Royal Military College of Science at Shrivenham, which I didn't know anything about because it was a, a really uh, essentially an army university. So uh, I went round to see this guy and uh, asked him about what it was. He says, oh yes, uh, you know, a great place if you want to uh, do that kind of thing. And it really, I've been doing it half my RF life, mm. teaching people. Yeah. So uh, I went off to the interview, went into the interview. The chairman of the board was this left-hand curtain. Oh, all right. So I, 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 you know, I was amazed at uh, this. And uh, anyway, I went, they asked me all these questions and... Uh, <laughs> Eventually, uh, they offered me the the, uh, the post, so uh, off I went. I uh, left the air force. Uh, that was a bit of a, a disappointment. Uh, leaving, nobody seemed interested. All I had to do was go back to the stores, hand in the kit that they wanted, and leave. There was yeah. no, you know, balloons or anything. Uh, you just you just walked away, and that was it. You never. In fact, I've never heard from them since. No reunions, nothing. Anyway, I went off and uh, went off to Shrivenham. I, I, we lived quite close to uh, uh, Shrivenham at that time in Marlborough because I'd been commuting there down to uh, Bottom Down and over to Blanford. Uh, turned up at this place, went into the computer science, science section, and who was there? This Lieutenant Colonel. He, he'd now left the army and he'd become a professor of computer science running the department that I joined. Oh. So I was there for 23 years. Okay. So we taught uh, the, the army uh, 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 contingent who were mainly uh, the, the engineering side of uh, the army. 
But all the RF engineers used to go through there as well. So we used to teach them. The Navy had their own place down at Darton. So we taught them uh, um, undergraduate programs, postgraduate programs. Okay. Uh, I taught them how to program, basically. That was my specialization. Right. And, and you retired from there to come to New Zealand, or? No, uh, we retired from there, yeah. Uh, but we stayed in uh, Marlborough for quite a while. But uh, my uh, youngest daughter, two daughters, had emigrated to New Zealand uh, and then started a family. And uh, uh, so they'd been out here, uh, well, it's been about 15 years now. But our first granddaughter, a special needs child, so uh, she was growing up and becoming, it was, you know, becoming more difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, so we decided to come and, uh, and help. Right. So that's why we're here. And she should have been here today, but she's very temperamental and uh, she decided she didn't want to come. So uh, we've got a free weekend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to hear about your RF career. Yes, I, it's not as clear as I imagined it would be in my mind. It's a bit uh, fuzzy. It's uh, a long time ago. Yeah, well, no, it came across very well, so <coughs> yeah, I thought it was good. Yeah, thank you. Mm. Pleasure. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.